Welcome to The GAC Files, a podcast about the people, issues and ideas driving Global Affairs Canada. Bienvenue dans les dossiers d'AMC, un balado sur les personnes, les défis et les idées qui animent Affaires mondiales Canada. And now, introducing your host, Global Affairs Canada's David Morrison. Et maintenant, présentant votre hôte, David Morrison, d'Affaires mondiales Canada. Alison Leclerc joined what was then the Department of External Affairs in 1987, right out of university. Her political stream class that year consisted of Alison, one other woman, and 18 men. I recently had the opportunity to chat with Alison about her life as a woman in the department, as well as her range of significant and exciting assignments, including her current incarnation as Director General for the Arctic, Russia, Eurasia, and a bunch of other things. Hey, Alison, it's always great uh, to see you. Um, you are currently running uh, what you describe, but I think I agree, as uh, one of the department's most interesting bureaus um, because it deals with both countries and, and the theme of the North and the Arctic. And the countries are non-trivial because they include Russia. So I want to get to that. You're the, what's it called? You're the Director General of? Uh, my full title is Director General for Arctic, Eurasian, and European Affairs. Okay, that's a mouthful for a business card, but uh, we'll get to that. I want to uh, first talk a little bit about uh, you, a uh, couple of things that uh, I want to probe. One is um, before you joined the department, I, I think you hadn't traveled, um, and when you joined the department, I think you told me you were there were only two in your class of political officers, uh, two, 20 people, two women. So those are two places I'd like to start. Um, but back to La Colline de Richmond. <laughs> <laughs> well, first let me see, David, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, yes, uh, well, looking forward to talking about, uh, about the Bureau, but Indeed, my early years. So I uh, grew up in a town that at the time was a fairly small town by the name of Richmond Hill, uh, southern Ontario town. Toronto was the big city, uh, surrounded by farmland. And, and, and just for full disclosure, for several decades, I've thought um, Allison was from Forest Hill, and she had to correct me about the difference between Forest Hill in Toronto and Richmond Hill somewhere outside of Toronto. Which, which for me was a dead giveaway that uh, David was not from the Toronto area because he would know very, uh, yes, there's a big difference between right. Forest Hill and Richmond Hill. Richmond Hill uh, remained for many years the ungentrified part of the 905 belt. Uh, but as I said, it was, a, it was a small town when I grew up in it. It's really now part of the greater Toronto area. Um, I didn't come from a family that traveled very much. We had the usual American cousins that we visited from time to time, but you didn't need a passport to do that. So where, where were they? Uh, uh, mostly in uh, New York, Right. Connecticut so area, New across. England. Yeah. So you drive across, yeah. yeah. I think the furthest field we went was uh, 
Disneyland when I was in my mid-teens. So my first passport was, in fact, a red one when mm. I joined the department right out of university. I wrote the exam in uh, what was, you know, the traditional recruitment exam I wrote in the last year of my undergrad. Got a job offer. What, what, what did you study? International relations, political science, international mm. relations. Um, really very male-dominated area. I don't think it is anymore, but it certainly was uh, when I was going through it, particularly given the bent that I had towards security policy. So a lot of guys talking about guns and things. Um, missile throw weights. Missile throw weights and uh, diameters, a lot of millimeters. <laughs> I never really understood what that meant in any event. So I, I got the job offer, and uh, the council at the time was uh, just because you get it this year doesn't mean you'll get it again. So while I had intended really to carry on studying and get my master's degree, it was a wonderful opportunity when I wanted. So uh, off I went to Ottawa. Mm. Had you, had you, did you know Ottawa before that? Not at all. Yeah. No. Uh, and that was back in the day when they did cool things like a cross-Canada tour. And um, did you get in on all that good stuff? Uh, no. Word on the street at the time was because of the uh, not wonderful behavior of a few of the previous <laughs> classes, <laughs> the cross-Canada tour. Just for the record, I was after Allison. <laughs> Uh, it had been suspended yeah. and uh, wasn't seen to be a good use of uh, a fund. So, yeah, unfortunately, I didn't get to do a cross-Canada tour okay. at all. In fact, I, I should say it's one of the very cool things about the job I'm in now is how much I'm discovering my own right. country. Nice. So you you joined, and like all people that joined in those days, you scurried around wondering where you were going to be posted to. Where was that? So my first posting was in Brazil. Uh, at that time, of course, the, the CFSI was not even a twinkle in anybody's eye. It was our training was a two-week orientation, and then they put us into training jobs for three months. So I spent my first three months uh, in the Human Rights Division and uh, then went off to the South Africa Task Force which would give people <laughs> some hint of when I joined because apartheid was still a thing, uh, and then to the Latin America division. And mm. so a posting to Brazil uh, was a fairly logical um, uh, carry on from that. But if I may, just to go back, David, one of the things you did ask me about was uh, the male-female right. and the uh, uh, recruitment at that time. So as you say, in, in my year, there were, I think there were 60 officers hired, uh, 20 in each of the trade streams and political streams, uh, 10 in, we had all four streams at that time, so there was an immigration stream and a, and a development stream. Uh, but my, so in both the trade and the political, each had 20 officers and there were two women in each. Right. And then in the political stream, my one female colleague uh, went off on her first posting and met an American diplomat and resigned. Mm. So it was, uh, yeah, it was so still down at a to time. one. What and and so of the of the four of you in those two streams, are any besides you still in the service? Two. Okay. Of us. Okay. okay. So, so uh, you went off to Brazil. In those days, was language training offered? Uh, yes, yes. I had a wonderful language training uh, opportunity. I did part-time here, but uh, then they sent me off to spend a month in Rio de Janeiro. I spent it on the grounds of a still oh, actual... I thought you were going to say Copacabana Beach, but go ahead. Yes, it wasn't <laughs> down on the beach. It was on one of the, the hills of Rio in a convent. Mm. It was a convent that had become very active in... Uh, 
that whole liberation theology movement. Yeah, sure. uh, but there was on the grounds of the convent a little building that they rented to a language school. We lived on the second floor and uh, learned Portuguese on the first floor. And so I spent a month roaming around uh, Rio on my own and learning Portuguese with uh, missionaries. Mm. Mm. So it was a fabulous experience and and one and really set me up to speak to be very comfortable in Portuguese, but I think unfortunately isn't the sort of thing we do very much yeah. with certain exceptions in the difficult languages. Yeah. Uh, from there to Sao Paulo for how many years? No, Brasilia. Brasilia. Brasilia okay. uh, for two years. That was first postings were two years. Uh, fantastic experience. That at a time when the junior officer in a post like that did, you know, public affairs, but also consular, mm. a little bit of management. So you really did get a good sense of um, even a little bit of programming. Yeah. So we had yeah. the local initiatives fund. I, I would, I mean, my in my own experience, which was a little later, but the same sort of job, the junior political person. I was in Havana, and my commission was third secretary and vice consul. Right. So you had to do. Canadians in distress. You had to do all of the public affairs. You had to do the political reporting. Uh, it was a great way to 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 tap into whatever your interests might be, but also to be forced to to learn the department's business. Mm-hmm. What did you do when you came back? So I came back uh, to join another task force on the uh, uh, UNSAID or the Rio Summit. Mm. So that was uh, the 1992 Environmental Summit. So uh, working with Michael Small, who's recently retired, and again, great experience, thematic work, but still tied to Mm -hmm. Brazil because Mm -hmm. Brazil was hosting it. So in fact, I was back in Brazil a year later for the actual summit and saw the Framework Convention on Climate Change signed by then Prime Minister Mulroney and... uh, uh, and then stayed with the Environment Division, got my first taste of doing the Arctic um, before the Arctic Council was formed, but uh, did um, uh, did a couple of years on international environmental issues. And uh, I guess that's when I started my family journey as well mm. as professional journey because I left that job to have my first child. Shall I just carry on with my career <laughs> father? <laughs> so, but you were part of an employee couple. Which which brings its, uh, I mean that's an interesting um, dimension. I, I think uh, certainly when I was uh, a single person in the department, we all sort of thought employee couples had it figured out because you the the issue of trailing spouse at a junior level didn't really apply. It was you know couples could get could get posted. You had a child here, but then you you had a child on. Uh, posting, I think, as well. Yeah. So, uh, so I, yeah, I've done the employee couple thing. Um, at, you probably, as I, uh, were warned in your first months in the department, if you were going to marry a colleague, make sure it's somebody from a different stream. <laughs> <laughs> so that was certainly one of the. Uh, now, I think the I think the issue became a little more prevalent. Once the department actually started hiring more women, uh, which had, I think, taken a hold by the time uh, you joined, it jumped very, very fast to about 50-50, and then they created the Canadian Institute. But in any event, so my employee couple situation was not with a rotational colleague. It was with a non-rotational colleague. Uh, Those were growing in the department. So I wouldn't say that it was 
had it all figured out right. because both of us going on posting was not was not it, clear. Yeah, yeah, it ended up working out right. really well uh, because he uh, he focused on trade and trade policy, mm-hmm. and I was on the political side. So it effectively became, I suppose, a too rotational. Right, right. So, uh, so yeah. So I had a baby in Ottawa. I had two babies in Ottawa, and then we left for Sweden, and uh, I had a baby there. Uh, now, so I wasn't actually. I was on leave without pay when I had a baby in Sweden, uh, so I wasn't the groundbreaker that a couple of other colleagues were, because you know there because there weren't that many women in the foreign service. The whole policy issue around what to do with, someone with mat leave yeah, on, sure, yes. Sure. Um, so mat leave, but then daycare, particularly in a country like Sweden, you're not in the nanny belt. And uh, for those of us who then, and as I was, a year in, went to work, the daycare issue was really, really mm. tough. Because in Sweden, they have daycare centers like we have schools. So it's just, it's a it's not an issue for mother. You choose to go back to work for reasons that are unrelated to the cost or availability of daycare. So, um, but it was, you know, no experience is lost. And I think that the recounting of that experience to labor or not labor relations but to the collective bargaining people certainly contributed to what the department has now uh, done in terms of establishing that policy framework i mean it's extraordinary to think back to um just how challenging it must have been for um even getting things on the agenda right when probably the whole executive cadre was men and they're hiring two women out of 20 in each of the, uh, at least in, in the two major streams they hired in in your year. D- did you have any sense as part of a small cohort of women as to, um, were you active? Now there's the women's network, and, and they they put things on the agenda. Did, did you have any sense of being a pioneer Back then, did you guys have things you were advocating for? That's a tough question to answer. I Because I think at that time it was waxing. It was kind of going up and down. Mm. So in my year, it was very low. But we had a few years before us, the 1982 really, really large recruitment. And I had heard there was a women's group mm. that had then sort of fallen off. So it wasn't really active uh, when I joined. I I would say two things. I would say, no, we had no sense of being a pioneer. And if anything, we were just doing our best to fit in. We wanted to succeed within the status quo. So the notion of there being anything systemic or... Another way of doing things. No. And so when I think back, and I I think I mentioned to you this, this to you earlier... Um, a colleague in one of my first assignments, or he was a deputy director, when the issue had come up about women in the in the department, he said, um, you know, it's not that the department isn't trying to recruit women or promote women. It's just that they join and then they get married, have babies and quit. Mm. And that would be a really offensive remark now. Uh, it was a remark. I mean, of course, I challenged him, but not without any sense that this 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 was a uh, something uh, symptomatic of mm. something that was 
just really not right in the system. So I would say that it was an example perhaps of you need to have a critical mass and that critical mass started to uh, build a few years later. At the same time, I would also say that I do feel that I have asked the department for unusual things and I have never felt resistance. Mm. On the contrary, I would say after I had my second baby, for example, I wanted to work from home. Now, this was before the internet yeah. or, and not only did they say yes, they came out and set me up and wired me so that I could work from home with like the whole, what was at that time a very clunky kit. Mm. So. Uh, uh, Stockholm or? No, this was uh, when I uh, when I came back from my first baby. I then went to work in personnel as an assignment officer, right. and then I left to have my second baby with a view to taking. I planned to take a year off, even though it was six months at that time, and uh, they they needed somebody to come back. And I said, well, I would, but I didn't want to come back right. full time. Right. Uh, and uh, and they, you know, as I say, I proposed a flexible working arrangement that would allow me to work from home and and they were quite supportive i mean they were looking for those sure, kinds of sure. initiatives at that time so so i mean it's interesting how how progress happens and it's good to know that in onesies and twosies they were uh, accommodating but you know arguably real progress doesn't happen until as you say the critical mass is uh, uh has has been reached let's <coughs> we're, <coughs> we're um Moving along, so you, you were in Geneva uh, for some years. You came back. Uh, you you were the corporate secretary, and maybe you can just give us a, a quick riff on that. And then I do want to get to your work on on the Arctic and on Russia, as those are are some of our uh, hottest files. But but tell us quickly about being a corporate secretary. So corporate secretary, I suppose, it's not a job for everyone. It's one certainly, though, I enjoy, particularly because it was a really interesting time. I took it in 2014. Mm. So it was two years after, one year after the amalgamation, and then moving into a, an election, election sure. and managing a transition. Uh, so that was fascinating. But you're dealing with the departmental processes, making the machine work, and uh, uh, but with a lot of quality time with the deputies and with mm. the senior table of the department. So you get really a, an excellent. <laughs> that, that, that can cut both ways. <laughs> well, it was an excellent bird's eye view, and 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 actually an opportunity to contribute to policy discussions that you wouldn't otherwise have. Mm. Uh, so it was a it was an interesting opportunity. I would say, as with any corporate job, it gives you an experience that you you use because you do get a deep understanding of right. the plumbing of the department. So just for listeners who don't understand what the corporate secretary does and just how vital it is, uh, all of our briefing materials, uh, ATIP, um, ministerial, ministerial correspondence. correspondence. I mean, it really is cabinet. Uh, all cabinet uh, affairs. It really is the engine room. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, it's replicated, I think, across town. Every single department has mm -hmm. to have a, a, a corporate secretariat to to, to do its day-to-day um, -day business, especially as it syncs up with the town. Mais après ça, la Russie et l'Arctique. 
Oui, la Russie et l'Arctique, la création de ouais. la direction générale, ouais. Ouais. parce qu'il n'existait ne, pas euh, avant à mon arrivée. C'était la décision du sous-ministre, M. Sugart, euh, de déplacer la fonction de l'Arctique euh, du secteur responsable des questions de politique stratégique ouais. pour rejoindre la fonction euh, ou la, le secteur responsable pour les questions de l'Europe et d'avoir encore une fois deux directeurs généraux responsables pour euh, les questions géographiques euh, par rapport à l'Europe. Uh, so, the easiest division in terms of um, how to divide Europe was the old one we used to have, uh, Western Europe and Eastern Europe. So, <laughs> it's, it's actually, it's not an illogical division right now, given some of the political trends. Indeed. I mean, you have EU membership, which still makes the Western Europe side very big. Predominant. Yes. Right. So, um, so I became director general of this hybrid bureau uh, that I describe at times as a bit of a toggle switch. Mm. The multilateral thematic work of the Arctic division and then the geographic of not only Russia, but Ukraine, which of course mm. is a, a huge priority for us, uh, relations with Turkey, very interesting global actor, uh, Central Asia, where a lot of very interesting things are happening. And then very recently, in an effort largely to uh, equalize the work a little bit, Uh, as well as, I would say, operational synergies I've taken on bilateral relations with the Nordics. Okay. Tell us why, what, why is the Arctic important to Canada's uh, foreign policy, international relations? And do you see that importance growing? Um, do you, I mean, I, I would wager that most people in the department don't know a lot about what the issues are. How is it different than other parts of the world and other partnerships that we have? I, I think it's one of the only places that we are currently uh, fully engaging with Russia, for example. Yes, that's absolutely true. I think I would start by saying that the Arctic is an area where Canada is a really, really big player. And we shouldn't underestimate that. We have 25% of the Arctic, and that means that uh, we have an automatic leadership position when we're talking about international Arctic issues. The Arctic itself, of course, is gaining more attention globally because of this anticipation that it will be more, that its resources will be more accessible. Right. So then you have the prospect of global competition in this part of this world that is changing rapidly uh, and that is fundamentally fragile. Fragile uh, ecologically. Ecologically. Right. Absolutely. Uh, so it means that uh, that global competition needs to be managed really, really carefully. And we're a big player mm. in that uh, in that competition, that geopolitical as the geopolitical uh, interest or priority on the Arctic rises. Canada is, by virtue of its geography, a very important player. Mm. Uh, and for us, I would add, it is a sensitive area because the communities that live up there 
are predominantly, particularly in the East, predominantly indigenous. Sure. So for particularly for this government, I would say with its reconciliation agenda, our posture on, inter, on Arctic issues, our engagement in the Arctic Council is important globally and domestically. And domestically. At the same time, as you say, there is a, uh, a convention that remains that we collaborate that we work together with all of our circumpolar partners to maintain the Arctic as a zone of peace, stability, and cooperation, and that includes Russia. Right. So it is one of the very few issues where we are still uh, seeking to collaborate with Russia. So um, is it an exaggeration to say that climate change and the, the uh, environmental impacts of climate change have uh, made uh, made it more uh, apparent to the world that there's money to be made in the Arctic. And that's what's leading to some of the geopolitical um, interest. I, I, China, uh, for example, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm, try- I'm struggling with whether when I see or when we see photos of diff- ships of different nations uh, increasingly making their presence felt up there. Is this something we should celebrate, be worried about? Well, depends on your, where you sit, <laughs> where you sit depends on where, or where, what is the expression? Where you stand depends on where, where you, you sit. sit. So, but in answer to your, 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 your main question, absolutely. It is climate change that is a key driver and it is the warming of the Arctic and, and the melting of the ice. So the impact of that is not entirely predictable. But the Chinese, for example, issued an Arctic policy that looks out 80 to 100 years that foresees a a navigable uh, Arctic, both above Russia and through and around Canada, and the prospect of a commercial fishery in the high seas right in what they call the donut hole at Mm -hmm. the top. Uh, So it is, that is the, uh, the competition is because the ice is melting. Right. Yeah. But whether that is going to, particularly in Canada's Arctic, uh, you know, climate change is uh, more unpredictability. Hmm. So the ice may be melting, but that doesn't necessarily result in navigable seas. So it is, uh, uh, it is our international Arctic engagement has is driven by the need to, a desire to uh, maximize opportunity and to mitigate risk, particularly for those who live there. Mm -hmm. Well, Alison, it's not like um, diplomats at Global Affairs are short of things to do, but you have, I think, just outlined that uh, the Arctic is a real uh, growth area for, if those trends persist, environmentally in terms of indigenous communities, which of course uh, historically have not paid attention to national borders. Um, uh, So there's a domestic angle, there's an international angle, there's a resource angle, there's a geopolitical angle. Um, So I I would wager you're not going to run out of things to do anytime soon. Absolutely not. Absolutely (laughs) not. No, but it's a, it's, I think it is one of the most fun jobs in the department yeah, right now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I'm just back from Iqaluit, arrived back uh, yesterday. And, um, you know, this is a growing, bustling community mm. uh, that want to be, uh, to benefit from the modern economy, 
but they want to retain their lifestyle. You know, sure. they, they don't want the Arctic to not be the Arctic anymore. So, yeah, how, how you do that in a time mm. of really rapid and unpredictable change is, uh, is a huge challenge. Thanks so much. This has been great, and uh, I'll look forward to hearing at some point of how that challenge works out. Thank you. Merci. We hope you enjoyed today's discussion. If you have feedback or suggestions for future topics or guest speakers, please send David an email. Nous espérons que vous avez apprécié la discussion d'aujourd'hui. Si vous avez des commentaires ou des suggestions concernant de sujets futurs ou de nouveaux conférenciers, veuillez envoyer un courriel à David. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of The GAC Files. Merci d'avoir écouté le balado et nous espérons que vous vous joindrez à nous pour le prochain épisode des dossiers d'AMC.